be the Sardis era. Whole, whole church is a body. Dead. I would hope we would be uncomfortable, but I guess if we're in Sardis, we're dead and we don't even know we're there. Well, let's get right to it today. I thought I should start this with a cartoon that came off the daily calendar planner that Marla bought me. You got this office man, and this is Dilbert. I, I usually don't start a sermon with jokes, but I thought this might be appropriate. The, uh, the office manager comes in and sits down by Dilbert's desk and sits his coffee cup down and leans back and says, your project is my top priority. Tell me everything that I need to know. Next panel, he's got his head tossed back like he's asleep. I'm so bored, can't stay awake. Dilbert says, I haven't started talking yet. The manager wakes right up and says, it gets worse. Okay. <laughs> well, anybody asleep yet. <clears throat> we'll see. Let's go back to Ezekiel. I, I had one very perceptive person today come to me before services and says, what are we going to do today? Are we going into Ezekiel? Man, that's brilliant. <laughs> well, we have been here for a while. Chapter 12, it kind of got on Israel as a whole. In chapter 13, it got more specifically on the, <clears throat> the ministry about what they are doing and letting the people sit down in peace and quiet and think that they're safety and that everything's fine. But God made it clear in verse 22 of chapter 13 that it's with lies they made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way by promising them life. So with smooth, easy promises, which are lies. The ministry has deceived the people into thinking that everything is okay. That you don't have to worry. So it says, you're not going to see anything clearly. And I will deliver my people out of your hand. And you shall know that I am the eternal. Then we have a little bit of a change in the thought as we go into chapter 14. It says, then, I suppose... But this message had gone out to some people, perhaps to a large part of Israel for that matter, or those who were in captivity there. It says, Then came certain of the elders of Israel to me and sat before me. So they got themselves together, talked about what he had been saying, I suppose, and were probably upset by it, but they had to recognize, on some level at least, that God was speaking through Ezekiel. So they came and sat before him. Maybe they wanted to be to know more. Maybe they 
wanted to compute what he was saying. It doesn't really say in the context here, but I can't imagine that Ezekiel could have been too popular with the people, just as the end-time leadership of the church will not be popular either. Much popularity is the signal, in many respects, that something is wrong. Because what is popular is things that are easy, things that are clear to see, things that don't make you necessarily have to do anything, but maybe sit and wait for God to do it all. Or maybe you're doing the wrong thing, as we shall see here. So these men came and sat down before Ezekiel, and God spoke to Ezekiel. The word of the Eternal came to me, say, before things even got going. These men come in and start sitting down in front of Ezekiel with whatever on their minds. And God said, I think I'll interject the thought here, Ezekiel, about these people. And he said, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of, of at all by them? Should I listen to anything they say or ask? Is a question he puts to Ezekiel. So I want you to know these people that are before you, and they would have been the elders of Israel, a certain of them, not all of them apparently, but some of them. I want you to know that these men have idols in their hearts, and they have a stumbling block of their iniquity. We'll get to the meaning of that here in a moment. So they've got something in their heart that is not right, and isn't good, something they're putting before God, and they also have, in this iniquity of idolatry, a stumbling block. Now you think about the churches that are splintered off from worldwide today, and consider that thought as we move on down here. What idol is most prominent in the churches? And what is their stumbling block? We'll address it a little more as we go down. But think about that. Therefore, speak to them. Okay, he said, these people have a problem, so speak to them. And say to them, thus says the eternal God, every man of the house of Israel that sets up his idols in his heart and puts the stumbling block of iniquity before his face, and comes to the prophet. So he has these two problems, and he comes to the one whom God has appointed. Okay? I, the Eternal, will answer him that comes according to the multitude of his idols. God is telling Ezekiel, I will deal with these men and their problem. In a way, he's relieving some of the responsibility from Ezekiel by saying, this is a big thing. This is probably more than you can handle, Ezekiel. This is something I will take care of. You can preach and preach and preach to people, to the church, and sometimes it simply does no good. Then God has to take a hand. And he keeps saying throughout all this 
context, then you'll know who God is when he takes a hand. That I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols. Now, speaking first of all to the church then, God says the church is full of idolatry. Isn't that what you get from this? Does the church have gods of stone and wood that it is made? Does it have images of the so-called Jesus in pictures throughout? Does it have steeples that is raised in front of its buildings? No, you don't see that in the church, do you? They have a certain amount of knowledge of what's pagan and what is not, and a certain amount of knowledge of what is godly and what is not. But Israel, the church, and certainly the nation, are estranged, removed from God by their idols. <clears throat> now, idols in their heart and the stumbling block of iniquity in front of their faces has to be something very prominent. It has to be an approach, it has to be a focus, or something that is wrong, that God does not want there, but that is there. Now let's get a little insight on the stumbling block of his iniquity. Let's go back to chapter 7, verse 19. God uses the same expression back here, we've already been over it, but not in quite the context of what we're reading today. Uh, chapter 7, verse 19. They shall cast their silver in the streets, and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the eternal. They shall not satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowels, because it is the stumbling block of their iniquity. Gold and silver, i.e. money or wealth, is the stumbling block of their iniquity. Now, their iniquity is idolatry, but the stumbling block that is in the way is money. Now, what do most all the churches focus on? We're going to preach the gospel around the world. That is, each, each one of them will say, that is my responsibility, that is my calling. Almost without exception, that is the case. And the next thing they talk the most about is the money to do the job that they feel is their focus. So it's all about, we have to preach the gospel, give me the money to do it. Those are the two elements that are the crux of the problem of the church today. If you read Revelation 3 about Laodicea, that is echoed there. Because we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing is a definition of idolatry. I am everything I need to be. I'm okay. Is that not idolatry? Is that not a worship of self? And almost everyone has fallen into that trap. 
Almost everyone says, I'm the Philadelphian. Everyone else is the Laodicean. So they have set themselves up as idols. They set Herbert Armstrong up as an idol. Marla and I were talking about that this morning. You know, he's been dead 21 years, but he was basically off the broadcast from around 1960, 61, 62, almost entirely from then on, except an occasional repeat. So from 1960 on, there's not been much exposure of the world to Herbert Armstrong. And that's uh, 47 years. You have to be old. Let's say you were 20 years old when you were last able to hear him broadcasting live, and that was 47 years ago. That makes you 67 years old. No wonder there aren't many people who have heard of Herbert Armstrong. And yet one of the main branches, in size at least, of the Church of God makes that almost their entire focus is the work of Herbert Armstrong that nobody knows anything about. Unless they're old. Even very old. Now let's see if that thought doesn't bear itself out here as we go on to this. That I may take the house of Israel in their own heart. The things that they have in their heart must be dear to them, okay? Whatever you're doing as a work of God or a church of God today, whatever your main focus is, has to be in your heart or at the heart of or the center of what you're trying to do. So I think that should give us a logical tie-in right there. What is, what is it in their heart to do? That which Herbert Armstrong himself told them, don't do. He said the work of calling is done because that's what he perceived his work to be. Go get the church ready. There are very, very few organizations today in the splintered church of God whose focus is to get the people ready. Most are trying to preach the gospel as a witness to the nations. I can only think of one exception, and that would be John Reitenbaugh, who recognizes that preparing the church is the main focus today. And he's not out trying to preach to the public and do a calling work. He recognizes that to be the case. There may be a few other very small groups who understand that, but I do not know of them. <coughs> Give credit where credit is due. You know, I'm not trying to stand here and say I'm down on everyone. Uh, there are a very few who see through what most do not see through at all. The idol in their heart is that they are to be the ones to preach the gospel to the world as a witness. And their stumbling block is money. And you hear an awful lot about money from most of them. I the eternal will answer him that comes according to the multitude of his idols. God is going to make a judgment based on how many idols each of these elders or ministers or organizations has. He is able better to assess that than any of us could possibly do and to know what to do about it. 
that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols. The whole church is apart from God because of idolatry. That's what he's saying here. For us to define all the ins and outs of that idolatry might be difficult. So for me to give you lots of different examples I don't think is necessary here. But the, the very calling or focus or purpose seems to be a major part of it because that's what's close to their heart. That's what they're doing. And yet God says the whole bunch is off the trail, off the track. All right, verse 6. Therefore, or as a result of what is, say to the house of Israel, that would be to the church, here's the message he tells Ezekiel to give. Because I know what their problems are, I know what's in their heart, I know what their focus is, I know what their idolatry is, and I know what their stumbling block is. And I will assess their idols, and I will take care of it, and I will make them know that I'm God. Here's what you are to say. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the eternal God, Repent, and turn yourselves from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. Now isn't that a strange thing for God to ask Ezekiel to do? What has been God's message from basically day one with mankind? It's always been the same. All the prophets preached the message of repentance. John the Baptist preached a message of repentance. A voice of one that cries in the wilderness, spiritual wilderness. He was in the physical desert as well, and nobody wanted to hear it. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ himself came preaching that same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did Peter pick up on? Read Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized. God's message for mankind might seem trite or common because in every age, in every way, it has always been the same. Because mankind's conduct has always been the same. I'm sorry, that's just the way we are. That's the way we've always been. So, it isn't too hard to pick up on what the current message ought to be from God and thus from his ministry is to preach repentance. But what are most of the churches preaching today? Most of them do not preach repentance. Most of them will not <coughs> tell their congregations most of the things that are wrong with them. Most of the things that need change. Why? They're afraid to. They're afraid that if they preach a strong message of repentance and that you need to change, the people won't want to hear that and they'll go somewhere else where it's more peaceful and more comfortable. So almost without fail, the churches have made a comfortable, easy existence for most of the people most of the time. Here and there, a little is said, now and then, by some. But for the most part, they want you to be there 
and pray and stay and pay. Three things. Stay, pray, and pay. With more emphasis on pay than pray. That's just, sorry, it's just the way it is. But now, Ezekiel was the only one, really at this point, when God was working through to give a message to these exiles, and really, to us, because it was written for the most part after that exile was pretty well finished. So it had to be for a future people, and this is the people it is talking to, the church we know today. And the message to the church today should be repent and turn yourselves from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. So the ministry should be telling people repent, get rid of your idols and your abominations, turn to God with your whole heart. That should be the message of the ministry the church is today. But for the most part, it is not. It is we must get the gospel finished. Almost without fail. So Reitenbaugh or anyone else who comprehends or understands is working at getting the people ready. How do you get people ready? You get them to turn away from the ungodly things and turn to godly things. That's how you get people ready to face their God. Are you ready to face your God? Amos said that, didn't he? Prepare to face your God. Now, if I have a responsibility, it is knowing that we are very close to the time when we will have to face God. And I would rather you go there prepared for that than unprepared for that. Because God is going to make his presence very much known very shortly. And they will know that he is eternal. Who can stand before his fire? Who can stand when he appears? I would like to be able to, and I would like for everyone in this room to be able to stand in the day that he appears. That requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of thought and prayer. It is not a comfortable situation. And God spent the whole chapter of 13 Ezekiel explaining that I'm not happy with these people that will make you comfortable. You have to be made uncomfortable. When do you get up out of a chair or off a couch? Generally, when you're uncomfortable. If you're sitting in a straight-back chair that won't you, let you lean back and relax, you start getting uncomfortable, you'll look around and find that there's a softer, more comfortable place. You get up off the couch if your tummy begins to growl, and you begin to get uncomfortable, you'll get off the couch and go to the kitchen. Or you may be sitting on the couch, and you have a call of nature which makes you uncomfortable, so you'll get off the couch and take a little trip. People don't move much when they're comfortable. Sometimes, at my advanced condition of age now, 
Sometimes I get up early in the morning because the bed simply gets so uncomfortable I can't stay there anymore. And I have to get up and move around because of various aches and pains. There are times when I would like to sleep more because I feel like I would like to have more sleep, but my body may hurt so bad I can't sleep anyway, and the only relief is to get up and move around. People get out of bed because they're uncomfortable. People get out of couches and chairs. But as long as they have a comfort level, why move? And if we are comfortable spiritually, we don't move. There are protesters today, I understand, gathering around the country to protest the escalation of the war in Iraq. Why? Because people are becoming more and more uncomfortable with what the leadership of this nation is leading us into. And they think that those men are stupid or dumb or can't understand how to run a country. Most of them do not realize that the men are actually quite capable, but they're evil. And that they plan to destroy this country as part of their agenda. Otherwise, the things that they are doing certainly look stupid. And people are beginning to get uncomfortable with the apparent stupidity of our leadership. And therefore, they're beginning to have marches. Nothing changes in a country, in a world, or a church, unless people get uncomfortable. It is discomfort that leads to revolutions. The slavery that the peasants in Russia were under was part of what led to a revolution. Who wants to go out and scream and shout and jump up and down and create a revolution if you're comfy? Maybe that should be enough said. It has never been the job of the ministry to make people feel comfortable to tell them but to tell them to repent. I don't care where you go in the Bible, you're going to find the same message. It's always there. Because it is our abominations and our idolatries which cause us to be estranged from God, and if there's a great gap between us, there's going to be some serious discomfort and embarrassment when we have to meet our Maker. And he's going to come suddenly to his temple pretty soon. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be ashamed. I may fall on my face and say, be merciful to me, a sinner, and get my shoes off in a hurry because I'll realize it's holy ground, but even though I may recognize my own faults and sins and difficulties and weaknesses at the same time, I hope I'm not embarrassed to the point where I can't stand it, I can't face it. And we'll be more able to do that the less iniquity and the less sin we have in our lives. For every one of the house of Israel, or of the stranger that sojourns in Israel, which separates himself from me. God did not separate from us. We separated from him. It happened in the Garden of Eden, and it's happened in our relationships ever since. God has always been right there. He hasn't moved. We did. We've always moved away from it. 
because the Bible makes it clear that our sins cut us off from God. They remove us from it. Have you ever been around someone, maybe it's an old friend even, that you haven't seen in a long time, or someone you don't know very well, and you wonder what they think, and you wonder about them, and you're there, and you're supposed to be maybe making conversation with them, but you don't know how things are. And it's a little embarrassing, not necessarily embarrassing, uncomfortable, I guess is the word I'm trying to say, to try to make conversation with someone, and you don't know where they're coming from. And you know how people will feel, feel each other out in conversations, or you meet somebody new, and maybe they're at your house for the first time, and you ask certain questions trying to find out what's going on in the head of the person you're talking to. Because you don't know. And in talk, you try to find out if there are commonalities. You try to find out if there are serious disagreements. You try to find out if this is someone you can relate to and talk to. And sometimes we make mistakes, don't we? Sometimes we may think that it's okay, but we may stick our foot in it and say the wrong thing. And it may come back on us. Because we don't always know what's going on in someone's mind. Sometimes we think we're comfortable in a relationship and we go, I didn't know you at all. <laughs> I, I found out you're not at all what I thought you were. Have you ever had that experience? We all have. So Israel separated from God and sets up his idols in his heart and puts the stumbling block of iniquity before his face. So wealth, money, is one of the biggest problems. Why was it said that money is at the root of all evil, or a root of all evil, more properly translated? It is one of the main roots on the tree of evil. Money is. And it is in the way of the church today, and it is in the way of our nation today. Is this a nation that is focused on obeying God and closing the gap between God and our nation is the church intent on closing the gap between the church and God. No. It's doing a work that they perceive they ought to be doing based on one scripture while ignoring about 40,000 others. We are a nation that is driven as a, as a people, as a physical nation, by a fiat money system that is really fake. There's no real wealth there. Whatever. But boy, are we mad, maddeningly, or maddeningly, what am I trying to say? Uh, wholeheartedly seeking that wealth. Maddeningly. Hard to spit that one out. And the church is doing the same thing. So he separates from God and puts a stumbling block of iniquity before his face and comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the eternal, will answer him by myself. So I don't think it's the job of any true ministry today to go to the rest of the ministry in a specific manner 
to try to tell them what their problem is. God is telling Ezekiel, preach repentance, but if these people come to you, I'll handle it. I'll answer him by myself. You see, you can talk and you can talk, but when it really boils down to it, the only one who can make people know who God really is, is God himself. I'm going to take a hand. That's why he keeps saying saying all through here, then they'll know I'm God. Because you can talk about it, Ezekiel, and they're hard-headed. I'll make you more hard-headed than they are, but you're still not going to get through. That's what he said at the very beginning of this book. They are a self-willed, hard-headed, presumptuous people. They will not listen. He's emphasizing it here. You can go and preach repentance, and you should. But don't expect much results. This is something I've got to handle myself. So anyone who takes it upon himself to think he can go and straighten out the ministry has another thing coming. I mean, we're seeing the story here as we go through this. But I don't feel it's incumbent upon me or us to go out there and necessarily rub their nose at this. God says, you just reach, preach, preach, preach repentance, I'll take care of the rest of it. Okay? And I will set my face, verse 8, against that man, and will make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. So anyone who has this idol in his heart, who has the stumbling block of iniquity, God says, I will cut him off from the midst of my people. What does Zechariah 11 say? It says in one month he's going to cut off three major trees or major ministries. In one month. Now, if money is the stumbling block of iniquity, which Ezekiel himself seems to be fine here, or God does to Ezekiel, when this financial crash comes, it is about to come of our worthless fiat money. They won't have any way to preach the gospel to the world as a witness, will they? Because the money will be cut off, and you can't do it. You can't send out booklets and magazines and have radio and TV broadcasts without money to buy the time. So that which they have been trying to do is going to be cut off and stopped. God will do that. Now what does he say to those where he is truly working. We've been through Isaiah. Chapter 55. Hey, everyone that thirsts, come you to the waters. And he that has no money, come you, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The real work that God once done ultimately is going to be done without money at a time when everyone else's money has been cut off. And he will be able to accomplish the work that he once done without money. At least money as we know it today. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? 
and your labor for that which satisfies not. Hearken diligently to me, and ye eat you that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. What he's saying there is essentially the same thing Ezekiel's saying. If you want to close this gap between you and me, come, draw near to me, obey me, do what I say, get rid of your iniquities and your idolatry, and we're going to be good buds. We'll be close. Verse 9, and if the prophet be deceived, I'm back in Ezekiel now, 14. If the prophet be deceived when he has spoken a thing, I, the Eternal, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand upon him and will destroy him from the midst of my people, Israel. What is God telling Ezekiel here? He says, it's my responsibility. Don't you worry about that part of it. If that prophet is deceived, he may have deceived himself, he may be deceived by things he's read and not understood, but I will take responsibility for it, and I will deal with him. You don't have to. <clears throat> now, to some degree, there is a responsibility given at one point to the two witnesses to go measure the altar and the temple and then the worship therein to make an assessment of what is good and what is truly part of the temple and what is not. But it is not the personal responsibility, I don't think, even at that point, to try to straighten out each individual, but to preach a message and to try to determine that which is upright in God's eyes and that which is not, the plumb line. But God says, I'll take care of that prophet, and I will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. It is God who will cut down the three trees in Zechariah 11, not man. And they shall bear punishment of their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeks to him. Because all his ministries are out here, and people seek to them for answers, and they're not getting the right answers. And they're just alive. They're seeking a comfort level. They're not seeking true repentance. How many people, over a period of time, will go to their minister, wherever he may be, and say, you've known me for a while, what do I need to change? What do you see in me that's bad? I wonder how many of us have ever gone to a pastor and said, you know, I pray to God that you're a human being. Tell me all you can see that's wrong with me. How often do you do that? How often have I done that? I had opportunity. I knew Herbert Armstrong pretty well personally. I knew the Sabbath with Ted Armstrong every day on the basketball court other than the Sabbath just about. I don't remember walking up to him many times and saying, Mr. Armstrong, you know, I'm a student here and what often you tell me that's wrong with me? I've been scared to death. This is that. Well, you're just not cutting it, Daryl. You know, I've been, I've been afraid of the answers I might have heard. Now, I'm not saying that we have to go and. You know, get a little booth out here with the right professional booth on it. There are churches that do things like that. 
We don't need to do that. Uh, we are to confess and forsake our sins, and basically that confession is before God. But how many people, the point I'm trying to make is, how many people really have their mind on growing, changing, and overcoming, and they're seeking, wherever they can find it, insight into what is wrong with their attitudes, their approaches, their words, their actions, or whatever. They're really seeking righteousness with all their heart, and therefore, from any source they can find it, they're seeking to find out what is wrong so they can fix it. There aren't many people like that, who are seeking righteousness with all their heart. They shall bear the punishment of their iniquity, the punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeks it. They'll seek certain leaders in the church, thinking they might find the answers there. And if they're made comfortable and their feelings are appeased, they'll stay there. God says, I'll punish them both, both the minister and the person, because they're not really trying to clean their heart out. They're trying to be comfortable and think that they're okay. Witness how many want to be a Philadelphians because it's the most okay church in their assessment of Revelation 2 and 3. So that's what they want to be. And if someone will tell them that's what they are if they're within, hey, I'm comfortable with that. I can live with that. I can handle that. What if that's all stripped away one of these days? Verse 11. Here's the purpose. That the house of Israel may go no more astray from me, neither be polluted any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, says the Eternal. God is not as concerned with whether we know the year Christ will return as he is with our spiritual condition. How much? Now, brethren, we have been through nearly all the prophecies at this point in the Bible. Well, the whole Bible prophecy, but I mean specifically the prophecies. How much time, really, have we spent examining the timeline of exactly when Christ will come or exactly when the tribulation will start and so on? We've touched on it here and there a little bit, but not very much. And to our chagrin and discomfort and frustration sometimes, much, much more time has been devoted to what I'm reading again today. Change, repent, overcome, be more like God, don't be like human beings, don't be like the church is, don't be like the world is, be like God. That is the message that recurs constantly throughout the prophecies and the whole Bible. If you want to put the prophecies aside, go to the New Testament, what did Christ preach? What did John the Baptist preach from Peter and James and John? Get rid of the sin and the clutter and the abominations and the idols and everything that's wrong in life and turn to God. It's the message of the whole Bible. Moses' message. You'll be blessed, do this. You want to be cursed, do this. Make a choice. Maybe it gets frustrating. Maybe it gets old. Maybe it gets tiresome. But it still needs to be done. You know? Potty training for a child. Gets tired for mom, gets tired for the child. But sooner or later, 
Got to get done. Got to put poop in your pants. Church is the same. Sooner we learn, you know, the sooner we quit messing the diaper. How do we get to there? Well, it must. That must be the way it looks when God looks at the church. He's like a baby with a load in his pants walking across the room. We just can't seem to get ourselves trained and under control. So he has the same old message over and over and over again. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, some people will begin to wake up and truly seek God and clean things up. They really will. I hope we're on the track for that. We're certainly hearing more about it than I think probably anyone else. So why do you people just talk about prophecy? Well, what is prophecy? Prophecy basically is obey God so he can bless you. That's what prophecy is all about. Once in a while, in Daniel or somewhere, it talks about times and end and three and a half years and this and that, but not very often. Just enough that we can address it once in a while, but not very much. That isn't our focus. The focus is, don't be polluted anymore with your transgressions, but that you may be my people, and I may be your God, says the eternal God. That's what his focus is. He wants a people who have made themselves like him. That's what you and I are here for. The word of the eternal came to me again, say, Son of man, when the land sins again against me by trespassing terribly, then will I stretch out my hand upon it, and will break the staff and the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. Gives you a pretty good insight right there as to when God is going to begin to take this hand and do something about it. I'll tell you what, in the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, this country has made a major turn from God to humanism, paganism, immorality, and everything wrong and bad and ungodly there is. How much, for you who might be 70, 80 years of age, did you hear and see, or hear about and see, homosexuality and lesbianism 50 years ago. If there was a queer in town, most everybody knew about it. But it's probably only one. Or if there were more, they were very carefully hidden in the closet. Now it's open and everywhere. It's promoted every day, every hour, by every... TV program, commercial, whatever that comes on, it's promoted day in and day out, all day long. Just recently, we passed a major milestone in American lack of morality, and that is that over half of American women are living out of wedlock with someone else. 
Well, that was the statistic, probably men the same, you know. But that's a shocking situation when the country has come down that far. God says, when the land sins grievously against me, there's a point where I can't stand it anymore. He put up with Sodom and Gomorrah for a long time, didn't he? And then he said, no more, I'm going to destroy it. Same with Noah's day. And we're reaching that point today. Fornication is so common. I heard just out of the corner in my ear yesterday, I guess, the news had come on or something. I wasn't paying attention to it, but I just I picked up a little bit about some man who was having his young daughter inoculated against a sexually transmitted disease that he thought she might possibly catch someday. Now, whether she was sexually active or not, I, I didn't catch the whole thing. But the fact that the man, if I heard the story right, the fact that he would be concerned enough to have her inoculated against that particular disease shows that he fully expected someday that she would be exposed to that disease. In other words, we've gotten to the point that in our society it is expected that children will go that way. It's expected. And most are. They're living up to the expectation. Is it getting bad or what? What did God say when he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? I'm going to destroy this city. Lot says, whoa, 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 hold on a sec. What if I can find 50 men in this town that are Obeying you. Okay, I'll start. You know, then it went on down. <laughs> Numbers. Well, you know, what if this ends? Okay, I'll start. Couldn't find them. If you were to go around this country today, trying to number how many people are truly, righteously seeking God, and try to remove the separation between man and God and the wall that is there between us and the true creator, how many do you think you could find? What if you even went through the church and sought a certain number of people who were truly, with all their hearts, seeking God and to put sin out of their lives and to recognize sin and root it out? How many do you think you'd find? Should we draw it down any further? What if you went through your house and tried to find righteous people who are truly, with their whole heart, seeking to get sin out of their lives and obey God and have a close relationship with God and get rid of every sin and live by every word of God who would not spare themselves this, 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 or that that they tend to like. How many would you find? What do we hold back? 
What is it that is so dear to us that we're not willing to give up? It could be a lot of things. Different things. But God says, and it reaches that point where the land has sinned grievously, I'll stretch my hand upon it. He's already stretched it upon the church because we have sinned grievously to the point he was so upset, so I'm just going to blow it apart. Spit out my mouth. That's his assessment of the way the church was and is. And he did it, didn't he? Look around. He did it. Still happening. And he's about to do it to the country. Verse 14. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, says the eternal God. He can't save anybody else, and no one else can save him. It is an individual matter. It is going to come down to the point God won't say, well, if you can find 50, I'll save it. If you can find 10, I'll save it. He's bringing it down to the point where each man will answer before God individually. Now, Noah was a pretty righteous man. Noah stood up against the Babylon around him, wouldn't eat their food, wouldn't worship what they said worship, wouldn't change his daily routine of prayer to God where he prayed when they said don't, and even was willing to be thrown in the lion's den for what he believed. As if Noah was there, he couldn't save anybody but, uh, or Daniel, I mean, save anybody but Daniel. Noah the same way. Noah before had his sons, family, his wife, saved with him. But he says this time around, he can only save himself. Job, pretty righteous man, obeyed God's ways, his laws, his statutes, his commandments. Had a little bit of a problem and he thought he was pretty important and was certainly a godly man and therefore didn't see a whole lot of difference between himself and God. God made the contrast very visible to him before that was over. You aren't God, Job. You're not even close. But all in all, Job is a pretty righteous man. So he picked out three, Noah, Daniel, and Job. So, you know, here's, here's three of the luminaries that are in Ezekiel, I mean, in uh, Hebrews 11. Here, here are three people that walked before God. But they couldn't save anybody but themselves. We're coming to that. And if I cause noisome beasts to pass through the land and they spoil it, so that it be desolate, that no man may pass through because of the beasts, whether it's speaking of wild animals or human beasts, and maybe both, remains to be seen. <clears throat> Though these three men were in it, as I live, I swear by my own self, says God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, they only shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. We won't be able to save our sons or our daughters. It is going to come down to an individual thing. Our sons and our daughters will either obey God and be saved out of it, based on what they do, because we can't save them from it. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, Sword, go through the land. 
So that I cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Eternal, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they only shall be delivered themselves. Or if I send the pestilence to that land, and pour out my fury upon it in blood, to cut off from it man and beast. Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Eternal God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. It's going to be an individual matter. We'd like to think that we can save our children from what's to come, but we can't. Even a child is known by his doings. They have to be responsible. For thus says the eternal God, How much more when I send my four sore judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword, the famine, the noisome beast, and the pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. God says, I'm going to send these four things on purpose, so that they may know that I am God. Yet behold, therein shall be left a remnant. Well, this has been pretty nasty and pretty brutal what we've been reading, hasn't it? But even then, God says, it gives us some encouragement here. Therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. Behold, they shall come forth to you. Speaking of those who will be righteous, like Job, Noah, and uh, Daniel. They'll come to you, and you shall see their way and their doings, and you shall be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I have brought upon it. So, out of this destruction of the church, and out of the ultimate physical destruction of this nation, God says there are going to be a remnant of people, including sons and daughters, who will come to us if we are being righteous and responsible to go to the latter temple. God will save a remnant out of it, both of the church and ultimately a physical Israel, to begin the millennium. So it's not total death and total destruction. He'll save about 10%. And they shall comfort you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, says the Eternal. We'll see God's justification. We'll see a change of heart and a faithful remnant, and we'll begin to realize that God is doing all of this out of righteousness, but it had to be. Let's go on to chapter 15. It's short, and I won't, I won't spend too long here. The word of the eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, what is the vine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? The vine tree, speaking of the grapevine. What is it more than any other tree in the forest? Now we know in John 15 and many other places, Isaiah 5 and so on, that the church is referred to as a vine. I'm the vine, you're the branches, we know those scriptures. So God uses the analogy of his true church as a grapevine. But what is it more than other trees of the forest? What else you got in the forest? You got oaks and pines and cedars and all kinds of trees in the forest. What makes a vine any different than everything else in the forest? Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? 
have you ever gone out and said, like, I need to make myself a chair. I think I'll use a grapevine. Nobody's ever done that that I know of. <clears throat> I wouldn't make much of a chair. Doesn't have much use that way. Or will men take a can of it and hang any vessel there on? Need a place to hang your cast iron pot? Will you go out and get yourself a length of grapevine and drill a hole, stick it in the wall to hang something heavy on? Don't think so. That kind of wood breaks real easy. It's not, can you really even call it wood? Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The only thing a grapevine is good for, if it's not producing grapes, the only thing it's good for is a little heat to burn. Cast into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both the ends of it and the middle of it is burned. Is it good for any work? What good's a grapevine? Any value in it? Behold, when it was whole, it wasn't good for any work. I mean, before you burn it in the fire, you look at it and say, what's this vine good for? Can't make furniture. Can't make anything to hang things on. Can't build a house with it. Guess I'll just burn it. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, as the vine tree among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so will I give the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The church basically is getting thrown into the fire with the rest of the world. He says there in Isaiah 5, remember that one? How he says, I, I made a vineyard, I hedged around it, and I put a watchtower in it to keep the foxes from eating the little grapes and so on. And it produced wild grapes. So, so I'm going to tear down the hedge. I'm going to remove the watchman. I'm going to let the vineyard be destroyed. Because the church is either producing no fruit or wild fruit. Not fruit that pleases God. So says, I'm going to have it destroyed. That's what he's saying here in Ezekiel. Same message basically as Isaiah 5. If it's not producing grapes that are palatable, that are good to eat, but something that God would pluck off the vine and say, man, there is a nice grape popping in his mouth. Ah, I love that. That is a good grape. What are you looking for? Have you ever planted a vineyard? Or gone to a grapevine someone else has planted? What was your thought as you walked up to that vine? Well, I'm going to take a look at that vine and see if I can build a house with it. I've never approached a grapevine that way. There's only been one thought in my mind when I would approach a grapevine that I planted or somebody else planted. And that is, are there grapes? Are they ripe? And are they good? Because I want to eat some good grapes. So God used the analogy of the grapevine on purpose. Now, he could have made grapes grow on oak trees. And you could go up and if it didn't produce any grapes, then you could have cut the oak tree down and go sell the house. But he used a vine tree on purpose because it has no value except to produce fruit. That's 
The church is of no value unless it produces fruit to God. So the only thing good for it that doesn't produce sin is what? Burn it up. So what's he doing with the church right now? He's burning it up, and he's just about to set fire to the nation. And the signs of that are coming clearer and clearer and more and more common. He's just about to do it. Only good for grapes or fuel for a fire. And I will set my face against them. They shall go out from one fire, and another fire shall devour them. And you shall know that I am the Eternal, when I set my face against them. So the rush from here to there, I mean, if you were, let's say you were a piece of grapevine, and there was a fire starting, what would be your reaction? I'm fine, I can burn. I'll run. He's got these little grapevines on legs. I'll run from the fire. God says what? I'll make another fire. And everywhere you run, all you'll see is fire that sets to devour you. And as it all burns up, you shall know that I am the eternal. Says it again, over and over and over again through here. And I will make the land desolate, because they have committed a trespass as the eternal God. In the beginning of 14 and through here, idolatry is the main trespass. All the other of the nine of the Ten Commandments are chained to the first. They all go back to idolatry. Why do you steal? Because you think that you want that for you, and you're more important than what God says about how you ought to live. So, stealing is idolatry. Killing is idolatry. You think you should live instead of that person, so you kill him. Colossians tells us covetousness is idolatry. If there's anything we want that is illegal for us, and we reach out and take it, or desire it in a wrong way, then God says that's idolatry because we're putting what we want ahead of what God says. So the real trespass, the big trespass, above everything else, is some form of idolatry, where we put ourselves ahead of God, what we want ahead of what he says, and his way of life. We've had people here leave because I said we should get away from the foods of Babylon, which Daniel did. So no, I didn't eat that junk. Give me something decent. I was out. David's going to save himself, it says right here. We would actually had people leave here, apparently, primarily, because they didn't want to give up their ice cream and ding-dongs. <laughs> Come on. You can agree with everything, but then suddenly one thing comes up that we don't agree with. However important or however trivial. And bye-bye. It's okay, I agree with everything until there's one thing I disagree with, and now my attitude is going to go south. Is there some idolatry there? I will agree with you as long as I agree with you, but the moment I don't, I'm upset. 
is there some ego and vanity there? Who are we to assume that just because we think something, it's right, and whatever anybody else might think is wrong simply because they disagree with us? We used to call it a sticking point years and years ago in Worldwide. What is your sticking point was the, sur- was the subject of quite a few sermons. You know, I'll agree with this and this and this and this, but boy, if you do that, I'm out of here. What does it take to get us that upset? Just because we might disagree on one or two things. Scary, isn't it? Idolatry can come upon us so subtly and so easily. Whether it's a doctrinal point or our idea, your idea, attitude, or just something we enjoy that we don't want to give up. God's way is a way of life. We have to be willing to change any and everything in order to get in line with His way of thinking. And it's hard for us. But that's what he's looking for, is humble, meek people who are saying, you know, okay, I like ding-dongs, but if that's the food of Babylon, I'll get rid of them. Ding-dongs going to keep you out of the kingdom of God? You know, wow, if I have to take, I remember one, if I have to take up makeup, don't off makeup, who are you to tell me whether God will have me in the first resurrection or not? I don't think God's going to keep me out of the first resurrection because I wear makeup. Hmm? Maybe not. But it might keep you out because you've got an attitude of idolatry and stubbornness and hard-headedness and you don't want to listen to a few scriptures that he has in here about it. Where every last one of them in here that you can come across has something bad to say about it. Maybe it isn't the biggest sin on earth, but on the other hand, if it turns into idolatry, then it is the biggest sin on earth, isn't it? The makeup itself might not be, but the worship of self, the worship of faith, the vanity, the ego, the lack of willingness to say, well, God gives about that, maybe I should take the hand. Does God have to knock you in the head with a two-by-four on something? Or can he give hints throughout the Bible and you say, well, you know, maybe if God kind of feels that way about it, and he kind of feels that way here, and he says this about it, maybe I ought to take the hint. Wow. You can't show me a scripture says ding-dongs are wrong. Look at that in the concordance. I don't think it even says ding-dong, does it? No, but there are principles there. We should be able to look around at a sick and dying nation that's eating junk and chemicals and realize that maybe we ought to change some habits. Because not only does it become idolatry because we insist on doing something that harms us, but actually, even Bill Clinton's waked up to the fact you shouldn't have pop in the schools. 
Bill Clinton. People listen to him. But if God says don't eat the foods of Babylon, hey baby, I'm out of here. The real sin is idolatry in some form. And it is idolatry in the church that has caused God's anger. And it's idolatry in our nation that has brought on God's anger. And that's what he always told the kings. That's what the prophets always brought to the kings of Israel. Get idolatry out. So think about it. Anything you put between God and yourself is idolatry. Anything that he hints about that we ought to change or that he is displeased with in any way. If we are unwilling to take the hint from who? From God. Then that is an idol. Some big, some small. But anything between us and God is idolatry. The way we use money, our desire for money, it just goes on and on. Is it wrong to make a living? No. We should do that. The Bible says to. But we need to be very, very careful about money. Do we desire things that we don't have the money to buy? And have to pay 10, 15, 20, 30 percent interest on in order to do it. That becomes idolatry. Because we are seeking something we really can't afford. And we're willing to put ourselves into jeopardy financially. And into a position that is bad. Simply because of our desires. Whatever they may be. And we don't manage our money properly and godly, and therefore we're in trouble. When God has told us, do not be a borrower, you can be a lender, but do not be a borrower, he told Israel. And yet we live in a nation that has adopted and adapted a way of life that is to be in debt to get what you want. That is idolatry. Managing our money properly and godly takes us away from idolatry. It is an idolatrous system we're living in, and they're throwing credit cards in your face day in and day out. Going to debt, going to debt. You deserve a vacation. You should go see your children. You that blah blah. It just goes on and on and on. Not if you have to go into debt to do it. That's idolatry. It's putting your desires ahead of what God says. Don't be a borrower, but you can be a lender. Do we believe him when he says that? Money's a big issue in America today. And we suddenly are the biggest debtor nation on earth, owing trillions of dollars. That is idolatry. And it's idolatry on a personal level as well as a national level. You and I cannot straighten out this nation. The only ones we can straighten out are ourselves. So we have to bring it down to personal. Am I willing to obey God? Or do I still find myself going the way of this world and buying things that I cannot afford and then wonder how in the world I'm going to pay my bills. 
I have a new car, I have a new house, I have a new this, I have a new that, I need to go out to eat. Throw it on the credit card, throw it on the credit card. Now how am I going to pay for all my credit card debts? You ought to cut the things up. If you don't have the strength and the character to control them and not use them to the point you go into debt, then maybe they need to be cut up and don't use them anymore. Idolatry takes many forms. But we put ourselves ahead of God in God's way. And then we wonder why we have difficulties. It's that way in every aspect of life. God is looking for a people who will put him first in everything and will live by every word of God, not just the ones they like. Now, will we have some leave, one leave the church because it says we shouldn't go into debt and have our cards, credit cards full? I don't know. Or will we have people say, you know, you sure hit that one on the nail or on the head? Maybe I better do something about it. Maybe I better get rid of some idolatry and learn to manage my finances in a godly way. And then I won't be broke all the time, and I won't be in debt up to here. Some people make pretty good livings and can't get by. Why? Because of idolatry. Got to have this, got to have that. Can't control myself. Oh, I had a good week this week. Made some money. Let's go out to eat. Okay, bull 100, 150. Then wonder why you're broke next week. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, but it's the American way. It's not God's way. There is a grievous sin in the land. And idolatry takes many forms. And God says, repent of that and obey me, and I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will save a faithful remnant who will go my way. I'll restart the earth on the basis of that 10%. I use that as seed to build a godly society. I want to be part of that. You want to be part of that. Well, let's make the sacrifices necessary so we can be. That's what Ezekiel is saying to us.